Joshua 3. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be verses 1 through 17. Joshua 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord again a way of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit to enable me to declare your glorious gospel truth to your church this morning. Give all of us ears to hear. See the glorious hope that lies before us. Confident trust that we have in Christ. For his sake, we pray and ask these things for the building up and edification of your people, the glory of his name. Amen. Um, as we continue our study in the book of Joshua, having examined the account um, of the spies who were sent in to the city of Jericho and Rahab's confession of Yahweh as the one true and living God, we turn our attention this morning to the record of Israel crossing the Jordan River. I'm underscored there in verse 17, where we read, And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Central to the narrative is the Ark of the Covenant, mentioned 17 times in chapters 3 and 4, 
which form a single unit. Each chapter covers different parts of the event, and we'll take them separately. Chapter 3 describes the events associated with the preparation for the crossing. That's our topic this morning. Chapter 4 recounts the building of a memorial to commemorate the crossing, and that'll be our subject for next time. Now, this is a crossing that repeats, in a sense, God's great act of delivering Israel 40 years earlier when they crossed the Red Sea. A crossing then that was from out of bondage to this crossing, which is into the land of promise. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23, he, God Almighty, brought us out from there in order to bring us in. To give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. Which, beloved, makes this crossing no less significant than the crossing of the Red Sea. That first generation of Israelites, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This generation, now that generation's dead. First generation. There's only two living. This generation will be baptized under the wall of water known as the Jordan, the Jordan River. And this time of year, that river was deep. The current was strong, and it was overflowing. You'll see there in verse 15, for the Jordan overflows all its banks at the days of harvest. So this wasn't some shallow, you know, just tiptoe through, you know, knee-high water. It's overflowing. Making it a great natural barrier that stood in the way of gaining access to the land of promise. Now, before we proceed, a reminder. There's a couple of interpretive principles that must guide our study. Whenever we come into an Old Testament text, especially as a historical narrative, we must remember that the New Testament gives us explicit instructions for how we are to read Old Testament narratives. Look, for instance, just one place, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope. That is, the lives and the events of Old Testament believers serve as learning for us. Those of us who live after the, the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might have hope, hope, faith, patience, and hope as we pilgrimage our way through this life in a fallen world headed toward the promised land, heaven. Okay, that's the introduction. So here now. Israel, um, having camped near Shittim, which means Acacia Grove, anticipating this long-awaited hope, we're told here in verse 1, then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. Now, friends, it is impossible to live by faith and ignore the word of God in prayer. It is impossible to live by faith and ignore the word of God and prayer. And here, Joshua rises early and most certainly spends time in communion with God, and then he moves to spread the word of God that is to be received by faith to the people of God. So here in verses 1 through 13, which just breaks up into two parts, in, in verses 1 through 13, we see the word of faith that is expressed. Okay, again, the word of faith that is expressed. And then in verses 14 through 17, we see the walk of faith that is exercised. 
word of faith expressed and the walk of faith that is to be exercised. So here now, through the mediation of Joshua, God summons his people to hear his word. Verse 3, they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. That is, when the people set out to cross the Jordan, they will see God going before them. They will see their Lord going before them. The Ark of the Covenant, beloved, symbolized the very presence of Yahweh with his people. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, it was a, a, a piece of furniture, it was a box that God had given instruction to Moses to prepare in a particular way, in a particular form. So it was a piece of furniture. Now I have a visual for you. It looks something like this. It was about four feet long, two feet high. It was covered with gold inside and out, and it was topped with a solid gold lid. And on top of that lid, as you see there, you see uh, the, the, the design of, of cherubim, with their eagle, with their um, uh, wings spread over top. Now, this symbolized the holiness of Almighty God. Inside of the ark were the two tablets of stone, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is the expression of God's moral character. A constant reminder that God, He is holy. Symbolizing also God's justice. That is God's unwavering standard for right and wrong. The Decalogue. But also it symbolized his mercy. It symbolized his gospel. The gospel. Because over the law of God was the mercy seat um, upon which the high priest every year would go into the tabernacle, into the temple, and would sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb covering all the broken transactions of the people of God. Testifying, beloved, to the principle of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. The fact that an innocent victim would die for the sins of God's people, which is a picture of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it was the priests from the tribe of Levi who were given the task to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and they used those poles that you see there, or that you saw there, so that no human hand would touch it, okay? So with that in mind, verse 4, however, there shall be between you and it, the Ark of the Covenant, a distance of about 2,000 cubits, by measure, do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So because the ark symbolizes God's holiness, it needed to be carried 2,000 cubits in front of the people, which equals about a half mile. Half of a mile, okay? Which is a warning, while God is our companion as we go through this life, we dare not treat him like a buddy. These fools who wear these t-shirts that say God is my homeboy, or Jesus is my homeboy. He's nobody's homeboy. He's Lord God Almighty. He's holy. He's righteous. And he's perfect. Verse 5. Then... Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, whenever God was about to do something of dramatic, redemptive importance, he would announce it in advance, like he did at Sinai, before the giving of the law. 
he would call a solemn assembly of the people, and then the people would then go through a process of cleansing, of purification. They would have to bathe themselves and put on a change of clothing. Now, that would be quite a task for two to four million people on this day. Amen? Because they were about to be witnesses of God's redemptive action right here. So he says, consecrate, prepare yourselves, wash your bodies, change your clothes. Now, the, the imagery of, of washing one's body and changing their garments symbolized making a new beginning with God. Because sin is a picture of defilement. Now, we see this throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Genesis chapter 35, when Jacob made a new beginning with Almighty God, he said to his household, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. King David, after he repented of his sin, he confessed his sins. We read that he washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and then he came in and worshiped the Lord. Okay? Now, that imagery is carried over into the New Testament. You remember it wasn't long ago in our study of 2 Corinthians, in the context of the Corinthians repenting from their idolatry, we read in the sixth chapter of 2 Corinthians these words, do not be bound together with unbelievers. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord. We read that same language in the book of Revelation with the Babylonian whore, known as the world system. God says, come out from fornicating with her, my people. Come out. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, every believer must play an active, vigorous role in sanctification. An active, vigorous role in sanctification. Because we are a set-apart people. Sanctification, to be sanctified, means to be set apart. That's what we are positionally. So practically, that's what we're to pursue. Amen? That's the idea that transfers into the New Testament. Now, here in Joshua 3, God is saying to the people, cleanse yourselves, prepare yourselves to focus on the glory of God. It's about to pass before you. It's about to lead you, actually. So you need to be in the right frame of mind for the mighty acts of God. Friends, this is a preparatory call. Prepare yourselves. Now, we, we prepare ourselves for many things, right? Families prepare for vacations where they meticulously plan out every stop along the way. People prepare for their retirement. They have detailed plans, strategies, accounts. They're well prepared. They could talk about it all day. Why? Because they're passionate about it. Because it's important to them. Question, what about our preparation for Sunday worship? What about our preparation for corporate study of the word of God? What about our preparation for the discipleship process that is our involvement in it whether we're being discipled or discipling or both what does preparation there look like because it's really a matter of what's most important to us isn't it i'll give you a great example this past thursday night in the men's study of systematic theology the men came well prepared which made for a great study amen amen men Amen. Verse 7. Now, the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. 
So the Lord says, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on your leadership before all of Israel, Joshua. So here, God transfers credibility of leadership from Moses to Joshua. He already promised in chapter 1 that he would do that, and he's going to make it visible now to all of Israel. Verse 8, you shall, moreover, command the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now, remember, God opened the Red Sea once Moses set his staff down in the water before they walked in. Here, God will open the Jordan after they walk into it. which took a literal step of faith for these men. It won't be until they walk into it that God will act. So he's building their faith. He's increasing their faith. And then he affirms his promise to be among his people and that he will indeed deliver them from all of their enemies. Verse 9, then... Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Now at this point, we're given a list of all the pagan tribes that live throughout Canaan. Look at it, verse 10. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. It's a lot of ites. Sounds like he has the hiccups. Now, this of course distinguishes Yahweh from all the false gods of the Canaanites who are nothing but wood and stone and the figment of sinful fallen mankind's imagination. And that's what every religion is today. The figment of man's fallen, sinful, rebellious, idolatrous imaginations, period. Israel's God is the one true living God who speaks to his people and then he acts on their behalf. God is promising his people that he will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Right? He will drive out the fierce people who inhabit Canaan. Now remember, according to Rahab, her testimony declared that the people of Canaan knew that Yahweh promised that land to his covenant people. They were well aware of this. This means that all the tribes mentioned there in verse 10 were nothing but squatters in the land of Canaan, right? It's God who holds the title, and he's about ready to evict every single one of them, right? According to his promise. So these pagans, remember, they worshiped Baal, this false god, Baal, who the Canaanites believed were responsible for fertility. That's why there was always this, this mixture of, of gross sexual immorality among pagan nations. So he was th this god of fertility and uh, also of the weather. Now, they also worshiped the false goddess um, Asherah, whose name uh, will surface later. So throughout the land of Canaan, there were temples, there were altars, there were, were high places devoted to these false gods located throughout the, re the regions um, mentioned there in verse 10. And God's going to destroy all of them as promised. Verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. 
It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. The presence of the one true God is about to cross over ahead of his people. Now imagine this generation whose faithless parents all died in the wilderness, here now with their own children ready to cross, you can imagine their children coming up and asking, Daddy, Daddy, Papa, Papa, Abba, Abba. What's going to happen? Answer? I don't know, but the Lord will make a way. He'll make a way. So here now, from the word of faith expressed, verses 1 through 13, to verses 14 to 17, um, the walk of faith exercised, verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people... And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. (laughs) So by following the ark, God is showing them that they were really following him into this battle. This great barrier, God lifts up. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. A great distance away at Adam, that's 20 miles away, 20 miles upstream. That is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. So we're told that the waters are stopped up 20 miles upstream and they rose up in a heap. Now imagine how high that was. Okay, you, you, you do not take two to four million people and cross a riverbed in just two minutes. It would take hours. And they have stuff with them. Okay, children and stuff. So it heaps up higher and higher. How high was that? Don't know. Okay, now remember, remember Baal was the great storm god who was supposed to control the rain, the hail, the snow, and floodwaters. So God is mocking their false god. This episode here shows that Baal was as powerless here before Yahweh as he was in the episode of the plagues down in Egypt. Powerless, impotent, because he doesn't exist. Amen. The signs of judgment in in the Exodus was God mocking all those false gods and bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. Here we see it again. So remember, the people of Jericho had heard for years how God had dried up the Red Sea, and now they're likely watching this happen from the walls of their city. No wonder they were melting with fear. Verse 17, all Israel crossed on dry ground. All of them. Notice it's not damp ground. It's not muddy ground, but dry. How long would it take to dry up a riverbed at flood stage, naturally speaking? Months. Here it dries up immediately. So just as God had parted the Red Sea on their way out from Egypt, he now parts the Jordan River. Just as their parents witnessed the power of God, this next generation witnesses an equally remarkable event before their very eyes. So the people finally enter into the promised land just as God had promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Moses, and soon they will take Jericho and all of Canaan. Exciting or what? Verse 18. 
I ask that because sometimes Christians will read this and they'll think, well, that's interesting, that's exciting, but uh, it has no relevance to me. I mean, hey, pastor, I have financial problems to deal with. Hey, pastor, preacher, I have a troubled marriage to deal with. I have a, a rebellious teenager to deal with. So where's the revel, re relevance to me? Amen? That's the American evangelical way, unfortunately, because everything's about me. It's all about us. How's it relevant to me? Don't be like that. I'll show you how it's relevant to you. You ready? Turn to Psalm 66. Now, David, hundreds of years later, is reading from Joshua 3, or he's at least remembering Joshua 3, and he's not asking, how is this relevant to me? Verse 1, shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power. Your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Feigned obedience, that means fake obedience. Pretend obedience. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Let us rejoice in him. When he writes that, he has Joshua 3 in mind. So David doesn't fall into the error of individualism saying, well, it didn't happen to me, so I have really nothing to praise God for. Right? No, God did it for his people, and I'm one of his covenant people. Without that great redemptive act, I'm not here. <laughs> Even though I wasn't there, the fact that the Lord did this makes me want to praise him. So David is saying God's acts in history are reasons for me to praise him today. We see it again in Psalm 114, our reading from earlier this morning. Look at verse 3. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like rams. So again, he's rejoicing over the fact that God in his sovereign power makes a river that runs one way to turn back and pile up in the sky. And he rejoices in the Lord. That, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever who does not change. So he finds reason from the account to praise God. And again, since I'm one of his people, I want to join my voice with theirs and praise his name. That's what we're doing right now. Because without those acts, you're not here. Christ hasn't come, period, because it all ties together. Now, Joshua 3 is a reminder that we ought to be thinking about God all the time, but we don't. Reminding ourselves what he is like, what he has done, that which he is doing. So Joshua 3 is inviting us to do just that to rejoice in his great acts of redemptive history. Charles Spurgeon, in the opening remark of his very first sermon, preached to his new congregation after being called to be their pastor, said this, quote, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, 
which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. End quote. In other words, friends, we do not serve a hand-wringing God who's waiting for your permission, let alone mine, to act. Amen? God never wrings his hands. He does what he wills, when he wants, and if he wants to get his people on the other side of a river, he'll part it. Amen? Backing the waters up 20 miles in a place called Adam. Exactly what he does. So God's people are to reason from this great act of God. Okay, the people here now, imagine, if God can displace the water, he can displace the Canaanites. They weren't afraid of the water. They were afraid of who was on the other side. Enemies of God. Nations rise and fall at his command just like waters do. America, beware. America, beware. So some applicable points. First point. Don't think I'm going to be done in 15 minutes because I won't. (laughs) There's some points and then we're going back to text, okay? So... Settle yourselves in. (laughs) First point, God will move heaven and earth to keep his promise. He said this land will be yours, so he reverses the created order to keep his promise because God is faithful. He is faithful. Now, this situation seemed impossible, and by nightfall, they're on the other side of the river. Thomas Manton said 350 years ago, quote, God is seldom early, but never late with his provision, end quote. So that means your impossibility in life is God's opportunity to show his sovereign power on your behalf. That's the hope that we have and that we learn from this historic narrative. Point number two to be applied. We see in this account, beloved, this is so important, it's all important. We see the necessity for spiritual leaders to go before the people in faith. In faith. In verse 13, the water doesn't back up until the priest set foot into it. Men of faith who set out to lead God's people as commanded by God through his servant, Joshua, these men had to be bold in faith. They were probably nervous as ever. Step into the water and then. So they collectively set foot into the water. Notice, the priest stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground. Leaders today, elders and deacons, of the Lord Jesus Christ Church must be bold men of faith who believe God and they act on God's promises. They cannot be cowardly, spineless men. They cannot be who shrink back at the displeasure of the people. There are men today who shrink back at the displeasure of those who come and congregate. Bold elders must stand behind God's word, and that includes the shape of God's 
preordained worship, the shape of the order of worship in service. Friends, Lord's Day gatherings, Sunday after Sunday, guess what they are? Very ordinary. It's very ordinary. That is, we sing, we read, and we respond to God's word. We do the same thing every week with some variations of songs and scriptures because God tells us to do it that way. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. And he says, do it this way and do not neglect to gather together to do it. Hebrews 10. Are you with me? We trust him. But sometimes, some people, the me-centered American evangelical type become displeased with preaching, prayer, and singing. So they want a service that is a little more their style. They want a service that fits their tastes. So they'll come to a church and visit one that preaches and sings the word, and they'll leave and say, I didn't get much out of worship. That's your problem. You don't come here to be worshiped. You come here to worship. You hear what I'm saying? You come here to give worship. Therefore, we read, we preach, and we sing and respond to the word of God. Now, those kind of people, those kinds of people, they, they start looking for that perfect place for them rather than the faithful place to God. God told the Israelites, priests, step out, do it this way, no other way. And they did it. Now, people start shopping around because the men under whom they were led in worship at the biblically centered church refused to budge because of the displeasure of some. Leaders today, in other words, must be bold men of faith who stand firm and believe God and act on God's promises. This is how you will worship me. This is how you will cross the Jordan. Then you're safe. Then you're in a safe place. You obey God's commands, you obey his prescribed manner of worship, and you're in a safe place. In the account, chapter 3, Joshua, and moving into chapter 4, who's in the safest place? Those behind fortified walls in the city of Jericho with archers and ammunition atop those walls? Or those Israelites who just set foot into a swollen river? That answer's easy because in two chapters, those walls do them no good. They're not in the safe place. The Israelites are. Another point of application. For those who don't have the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and King here this morning, this text should strike fear into your hearts. Because this God spoken of in this historical account 3,400 years ago is the same God that you will soon face in judgment when you take your last breath. So you have only one hope today. Run to the mercy seat and plead the blood of Jesus Christ to be saved. That's your only hope. So embrace his promises that the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. Otherwise... You will face the prospect of an eternity under the wrath-filled hand of this same sovereign God. The Bible tells us it is a terrifying things, thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Flee to the mercy seat, to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same God, the one who will punish sin. And he'll punish it either in the grace-provided substitute of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered the triune God's accumulated wrath for all his people, or it will be punished in you personally. Where you'll be cast into outer darkness, Jesus said, where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So flee from the wrath to come, run to Christ, rest in Christ, and worship him with zeal, and be certain to know that you shall be saved. That's applicable point number three. Now, back to the text. Notice, all Israel crossed on dry ground into where? The promised land. Now, sadly, it was not long after Israel entered the land of promise that they fell into the sin of those who lived around them, right? So rather than being the light to the nations, they soon became like the pagan nations around them. In Judges 17, the next book, we read these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like America? It sure does. Flee to Christ, and you shall be saved. Now, several hundred years after this entry into the promised land, God's long-suffering patience comes to an end, and Israel will be removed from this land, the land of promise, and hauled off into a foreign land and made captives in faraway Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years of exile, many Israelites will return to this land and they will rebuild, but it will never have the power nor the glory that it possessed after they entered Canaan. Right, you had the 40 years of peace and prosperity under Solomon. He builds the beautiful temple there in Jerusalem. Well, by the time of Jesus, okay, stay with me now. By the time of Jesus, even though the temple had been rebuilt with splendor, far exceeding the Solomonic temple, Israel was an occupied country in bondage under imperial Rome the Roman Empire. And the temple in Jerusalem at that time became viewed to be nothing more than a, a national status symbol and not the representative place of God's presence. Therefore, it will take a new Israel to earn the true inheritance on behalf of of God's people. It will take a second Adam. It will take the temple of God incarnate who will perfectly obey the Father's will. Perfectly. So in many ways, the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is a reenactment of the history of Israel. In Matthew 2, Jesus is a boy Herod seeks to destroy all male children in the region of Bethlehem, trying to murder Jesus. So by an angelic vi vision, Joseph and Mary take Jesus where? Egypt. We read in Matthew 2 and verse 15, for out of Egypt I called my son. That was a title also given to the nation of Israel. So just as Israel came out of Egypt, after Herod died, Jesus was taken out of Egypt. Joseph and Mary take him back up to the, the Galilean hill country. Therefore, it is no coincidence that when Jesus commences his public ministry some 1,300 years after they cross this river, we read these words in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, he came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River, very near to the place where Israel crossed over in the land of promise. This is not happenstance. Jesus, the greater Joshua, baptized in the Jordan, is given the heavenly benediction from his father when a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well 
pleased. He will fulfill all righteousness where Israel failed. In his baptism in the Jordan River, Jesus shows himself to be the true Ark of the Covenant, the one who had actually led Israel through the river on dry ground centuries earlier. The second person of the Godhead before he became incarnate. And just as grace brought them to it, okay, now don't, don't miss this. Just as grace brought them to it, the same grace brought them through it. Sinclair Ferguson is quoted as having said, there's no such thing as grace. There's no such thing as grace. Grace is not a thing. We only have Jesus. He's grace personified. The same grace that brought them to it, brought them through it. Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant who was promised. Represented there, he became incarnate. There will come a day when all of us will face our last Jordan, right? Our, our last inheritance to, to reflect John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when we will be but a river's breadth away to the promised land, to glory. We will have finished our pilgrimage our wilderness will be behind us, and for all of us who are in Christ, when it's all done, we will have no less days to sing his praise than when we'd first begun. We will say at the end the same thing we said at the, be the beginning. It is all because of amazing grace. The same grace that brought us to it will bring us through it, our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Ark of the Covenant the greater Joshua. Now, I love the note on which the narrative ends. Notice, the priests stood firm until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So for all who looked to Jesus, the great high priest of God's appointing, you can be sure that you'll be safe and that you will cross, but only because of the great high priest that is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For out of Egypt I called my son. And not one person who trusts in him today will be lost because grace saves all of his redeemed to the end, and they all crossed over. May God grant it to be so for you if it wasn't true when you walked in, may it be true when you walk out. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for that glorious gospel picture recorded in redemptive history so many centuries ago. Help us to take it, to apply it, to build greater hope within us by way of the finished work of your Son, your only Son, the greater Joshua, the true Ark of the Covenant. In his name we pray. Amen.